We've had several opportunities to talk with aliens in the movies. In the movie Arrival, humans painstakingly learn the language of giant floating aliens that look more like octopi that write with floating ink. In Contact, we establish communications with aliens using what some call the universal language, mathematics. But if we really discovered a signal from extraterrestrials, do we really have any hope for understanding it? We have programs like SETI, searching for signals from intelligence among the stars. If we found something, could we understand it? We can't communicate with dolphins, dogs, or even trees. What makes us think that we can communicate with aliens from another planet? This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells us stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, culture, philosophy, linguistics, our lives, and even how we see ourselves as humans. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Spark Dialogue Podcast continues to operate with the help of listeners like you. You can support the podcast on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. In return for your support, you'll be given a chance to participate in the podcast, ask questions to our guests, suggest topics, and see advanced content. You can find out more information on our website at sparkdialogue.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Sherry Wells-Jensen. I'm at Bowling Green State University. I'm a linguist, and I study disability studies, astrobiology, and message construction. In addition to all of those things, Sherry is a xenolinguist. That means that she studies alien languages, what they could be, how we can interpret them, and what we would do if we ever find a message in the stars. Ever since we first looked up into the stars and went, wow, look, stars, oh my gosh, they're beautiful. What are those? What's out there? Ever since we first did that, we've been asking the question, are we alone? And as our understanding of how big space is grew, that question of are we alone also grew along with it. It became more and more important. And now we know how vast space is, how unbelievably large space is. The idea that we're all alone here is, it's every kind of question. It's a theological question. It's a physics question. It's a social question. It's every kind of question that there is. If we were to discover life among the stars, it would change everything. There is not a single part of our culture that wouldn't be impacted. How we see ourselves as humans would be affected. Biologically, we would come closer to understanding where life originated from. Religiously, we would now see ourselves even more as part of the cosmos. Culturally, we would see ourselves as one of the many, somehow sharing this vast universe with our stellar siblings. We're close. We, within 10 to 20 years, we'll probably know if there's some kind of life on some other planet. And then uh, who knows what happens after that. So I think... It's not only a great question and not only a basic question, but this is the very best time to be asking that question because we could find out soon-ish. Yeah, 10 to 20 years, that's a that's very close. I mean, that, that means that a lot of people here listening might actually live to find out if there are aliens out there. <laughs> yeah, and they might be little green pieces of fuzz or they might be just a couple cells bumping around in some warm water under some ice um, or they might be just you know, goo. But even if it's goo, it, it would be a live goo, right? It would be some kind of distant cousin of ours. Um, and once we know that there's goo living on some other planet, then the game changes, the whole game changes. And we can start thinking that life is not so unusual, and it really could be out there. And then if life can be out there, other intelligence can be out there.
SETI has been looking for signals of intelligence for many years. There have been a few candidates for signals that might have been from aliens. One famous signal is called the WOW signal. It was received in August of 1977 and was a huge pulse in the radio frequency. Unfortunately, it's never been repeated, but no one has ever been able to figure out what this huge pulse was. But some argue that it might be the closest thing to an alien signal that we've ever seen. There was another example around Tabby's star. Tabby's star had huge fluctuations in brightness that were unexplained. Some people thought it could be from a huge alien megastructure, maybe something like a Dyson sphere that an alien civilization was building around their sun, trying to capture all of the energy from it. But unfortunately, now astronomers are saying that the dimming of the brightness around Tabby Star probably isn't an alien megastructure, and instead it's just a bunch of dust. It's kind of disappointing. Every time that there's a signal that has been a possibility, people get really excited, hoping that yes, this is the one. This is the day that we realize that we're not alone. But so far, none of these signals have panned out. We've had little false alarms. We've had signals that come through that people who are listening on radio telescopes go, holy Moses, what is that? And get excited for a minute, but then it doesn't repeat. And it needs to repeat um, so that we understand it to be to be authentic and, and of uh, intelligent origin. And it needs to be clearly not some bounce off the moon from some military satellite or something like that. So we have to account for it and make sure that it's from other places. And so far, we've had signals that we thought, oh, it could be. And then we look at it more carefully and we think, oh, I guess not. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. Scientists continue to search among the stars. SETI is looking mostly in the radio bands. And there is a telescope called the Allen Telescope Array that, along with other experiments in the radio band, is used to look at those extrasolar planetary systems for any sign of life. So what if SETI were to discover a signal? Or what if we were to send up our own signal to the sky? Then it's time for SETI's sister institution, or METI, to step up. METI International is a Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence International. Sort of like SETI, but it's METI. And... We're interested in, of course, there's substantial overlap with SETI, but it is a different organization. Um, how do you construct a message? METI is actually interested in sending messages. And then um, what are the social implications of sending and receiving a message? Should we even do that? Is it a good idea? There's a lot of dialogue that needs to happen around those things. And then... Um, what happens when we get one? Because we have to lay a lot of groundwork, right? And there's a lot of smart people thinking about this now, and Medi is one of those players sort of thinking about that. Because this is big. If we find out that there's real intelligence out there, that's big. It's a game changer for us as a, as a civilization. Um, and so we don't want to just walk into that without having thought about it in advance, right? We want to sort of lay some groundwork. It's like, th- it's like saying to yourself, you know, I'd really like it if we got a pony. I want to get a pony. And then you just forget about it and say, well, when the pony comes, we'll deal with it. And then bam, there's a pony and it's in your apartment. And what do you feed it? And where is it going to live? And it's stepping on your stuff and it's a big giant pony and you didn't plan for this. And oh no, what's happening? So we don't want a surprise pony showing up. We want the pony to come after we've thought about how to feed it and where to house it and how to take good care of it. So analogously, we want to think about what the signal um, will be like, how we might go about decoding it, 
And uh, what are going to be the sociocultural implications of getting a signal? How are people going to react? And how do we make it? How do we make it not so scary? And how do we make it exciting and fun? Um, and how do we? How do we? I don't want to say market because that's not really what I mean. Um, but how do we teach people uh, that this can be okay? And I think the other thing that um, a lot of organizations, including Medi, are really interested in is science education. So that people react thinking, wow, this is cool. And not, oh my gosh, I'm really scared. So let's say that we do receive a message from extraterrestrials. The message probably won't be in English, Japanese, or Swahili. So how could we interpret their language? As a starting point, we could look at human languages. Over the course of history, there have been over 7,000 languages in existence. That's a lot of data points. But still, all of these languages have one commonality, and that's us. First of all, I think it's important to remember that we are just a baby young civilization. We just have our kind of uh, planetary diapers on right now. We're just kind of going, woo, we can go up to the moon, maybe, but we better be really careful. So we are really, really young. If we get a signal, it's going to be from a civilization that's been out there much longer than we have been. So we might... Um, and I think Carl Sagan talked about this as well. We might assume that they know what the heck they're doing when they send us a signal. So it's not all on us to figure out what they are thinking. If we get a signal, they have probably done this lots of times before. And we're just the latest new kids on the block. Okay, let's send a signal to the newbies. Okay, all right, let's, you know, run program 413 and try to get them settled, right? So, um, so we might assume that they're super cooperative on their end. So maybe they will speak English. Well, you know, and maybe they will know what to do to be helpful, right? So we do have to think about kind of what we do when we have language, what language is all about. So currently on Earth, there are about 7,000 languages spoken. Um, we're losing them rapidly for what that's worth. We're, a language dies about every two weeks, if you do the math. So um, in 100 years, we will be way down. Um, estimates range from 50 to 90% of the languages we have now will be gone. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's like the biological die-off, right? Except it's it's language. So it's our cognitive and intellectual history and our cognitive and intellectual identity that we're losing as we lose these languages. So there are some things that languages have in common. They all sort of have nounish like things, right? So we, we can all refer to things. We can all have verbish like things. So people want to talk about things and they want to talk about actions on those things. And we'll have some way of thinking about the completion of tasks or time, right? Um, and we all have ways of identifying one and more than one thing. I mean, I'm being pretty cautious here because there, obviously there are a whole lot of other similarities that languages have. But what we believe is that our language reflects our physical and cognitive situation. So the fact that we have the number of arms and legs we have and the number of manipulators we have and the sensory inputs we have probably has some input on the kinds of languages that we have and how our language works. We always assume, I mean, we'd like to assume that um, at least we would have the idea of objects in common, right? That if that we'd all have nouns, right? That's one of the that's one of the things that we count on when we think about uh, decoding a language. Is that well, at least we'd be able to refer to things. But that idea of what a single thing is 
turns out to be culturally mediated. So if we see a mountain, we think that's a thing. But if we see a tree on a hill, we think that's two things. And how do we know that that's how other intelligences would divide that space up? So if I can't even point to a tree and go and think to myself, yeah, I'm pointing to a tree, that's one thing. If that's what it's in my mind, but my interlocutor is thinking, you are pointing at the top part of a very complex entity that links through various modes of communication, physical and chemical, to other entities, and you're just indicating this little bit of it. I feel like that's just a way that communication can go really wrong really fast if we don't even know what things are and don't even hold that in common. Uh, And that could extend through science, right? We only have our way of doing science. We only understand our way. We know that metaphors shape a lot of our scientific knowledge and scientific experience. And those metaphors come from us, right? They come from our embodiment. So we need to start thinking about what other ways are there of doing science? And what other ways are there of thinking about the world? Which is why it's not just about scientists, really. It's also about poets. And it's also about the dreamers and... uh, the painters and anyone who has a conceptualization of the world. We need all those people on board. They are human languages, resulting from humans. We have two eyes, one mouth, we see in the visible range of wavelengths, and we exist in flat space-time, so we see time flowing in a certain direction. Many animals, including humans, have male and female, a fact that's reflected in many of the languages that have gendered words. And it's tricky because we've got a sample size of exactly one. I mean, we think we've got 7,000 languages to go by, but we've only got one species that we know of that talks, right? We have other species that communicate. We've got dolphins and we've got other primates that communicate, but we've only got us that has what we understand to be language. So it's hard to know because when you've got a sample size of exactly one, you're not comparing it to anything, really. I would think that this work is sort of closely related to maybe trying or practicing, if you will, like practicing communicating with animals. Like, you know, dolphins, they might have what could be some sort of language, Uh, maybe like uh, gorillas. uh, And who knows, like maybe, you know, trees or mushrooms communicate in their own way. Um, And so it does Medi or have you thought about like practicing communicating with other species that live on this planet as sort of a warm up to practicing to communicate with uh, extraterrestrials? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. And yeah, people are doing that. People are trying to work out. Well, how do we really? How do we? And and it's important to separate separate out sort of trained responses from from what language is. So we can communicate with dolphins. Dolphins interact with us. They help us out. They're clearly very intelligent. Um, we're, we're not getting very far uh, in understanding their actual language. Like we can tell a dolphin, you know, hey, come over here or help me, I'm drowning by uh, communicating. But we can't say to a dolphin, you know, I really um, enjoyed my breakfast this morning. What did you eat for breakfast? And was it good? Did you have three fish? You have two? Oh, you know, I had, I had a nice soft boiled egg. And, you know, we, and it was really good and it reminded me of the time when I was a kid, right? We can't say that to dolphins. So Dolphins are a really great example because they have a different body shape and a different body plan, right? And they live in a different environment. So that world situation shapes the way they think, right? Probably. I mean, what do we know? And and would and if they have a language, it would be dramatically impacted by that kind of by all that stuff, all that cognitive and sensory stuff that the dolphins have that we don't have. So yeah, if we could, it's a little bit discouraging. 
because <laughs> you know we've been trying this for a while dolphins have been around for a while humans have been around for a while and um we're making progress we can identify uh, them as kindred intelligences uh but i can't talk about my soft-boiled egg yet when we're looking for a message what would we expect to see in the movies many times we're told that the universal language is mathematics Maybe it's a sequence of prime numbers. Maybe it's the frequency of pi times the transitional wavelength of hydrogen. Is this what scientists in the real life are actually looking for, though? As far as we know, it's reasonably reasonable. But what's reasonable to an alien, right? I don't know. I hope that I don't know. I kind of, I kind of want not to know. I kind of don't want them to be just reflections of ourselves. And we have to be careful about that because.、Um, We don't want to look up into the sky and expect to see only ourselves, because if we do that, we'll miss we'll miss who it really is if it's someone quite different than us. But all that said,、um, if they send a radio signal, they're probably expecting it to be received by a radio telescope, right? So they can count on the fact that if the message is received, that we built some kind of some kind of doohickey to receive it, which means we know some math and science. So the idea is that just because we're sending a signal. Uh, or they're sending a signal, and we're receiving it, and we get it. Like, oh, signal, gotcha. Okay, that means when that moment happens, that means that we've understood. Wow, you are an intelligence that has a sending device, and we are an intelligence that has a receiving device. And hey, pi, you know. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then at least we know they're out there, even if we can't talk about the soft-boiled eggs. At least we know that we're not alone, and that would be beautiful. But we're not only listening. We've actually sent some of our own messages. When the Pioneer probes ten and eleven left the solar system, they contained plaques containing the images of the human body and our location within the solar system. And the Voyager probes contained golden records with sounds and music from Earth. In the off chance that an alien spaceship stumbles along the Pioneer or Voyager space probes after floating through the vacuum of space for eons, would they be able to understand these messages that we were trying to communicate? Um. Let's see. How lucky do I feel? <laughs> um. No, probably not. But it doesn't matter really because what? First off, the the two purposes of those messages are: it's a message to us, to ourselves, about ourselves. We try to reflect. Like the Voyager Golden Record was a beautiful work of art and poetry and faith and hopefulness. Cast out into the void. The poor little probe. He's out there. He's going at the edge of the solar system. He's such a good boy. He's doing a good job, and it's kind of that is kind of about us because the the odds that someone will scoop him out of the interstellar void are pretty dang low.、Um, but that's okay. I mean, we did the thing, and it meant something to us when we did it. And will they be able to understand it? There's sort of two. There's sort of two thoughts. One is no, <laughs> no, they're not going to be able to. And the other is. Well, wait a minute. We are a young civilization. We are just. This is our first message. This is us with crayon on the on the big piece of paper taped to our bedroom doors. Right. This is what we're. This is our level. We spelled everything wrong. We, you know, we don't know what we're saying.、Um, uh, and if they are older than us, and if they are smarter than us, they might be able to understand it. They might be. Oh, that's a. That civilization is, you know,、uh, 64, and they have, they clearly are this kind of thinking beings, and they might have a whole science, a whole field of science dedicated to the study of new civilizations. And so maybe they'll scoop it up and pop it in their library and go, yeah, it's one of these. 
Many continues to dream up new messages to send up into space. There are all different types of messages we can send. Some are math and some are music. Some show the place that we inhabited in the stars within our solar system. They may describe what we look like as humans and who we share our planet with. I think Sherry's right. Composing these messages does tell us a lot about how we view ourselves as human beings. In order to be understood, they need to be redundant and contain enough information within one message alone to be understood, at least partially. So every message set is just kind of a little hopeful bottle cast into the sea. Medi is working on kinds of signals that are self-referential enough that they could be understood. Just given the information in the signal, you could learn a thing. And maybe the only thing that they would learn is that we do science. And that's okay, I guess. Some people, however, are very concerned by us broadcasting messages into space. We don't know who's listening. We don't know their intentions. Could they view us like some microbes on an anthill in Africa, like they say in Contact? Or would they just be interested in coming to plunder our resources and use us as slaves or even eat us for dinner? Some people have legitimate fears about sending a message into space without understanding who may be listening. Yeah, I think that it's really important not to dismiss people's legit fears, right? And we have to be respectful of that. I think of sending message as a profound act of hope. I don't think they're going to come and blow us up. Right? Um, first off, they'd have to come here, which would be difficult. Um, we think, you know, the speed of light is the speed of light. So probably our interaction with interstellar beings is going to be, we're going to exchange radio postcards, which would still be really nice. Um, I think I think that the humanity is a hopeful species. We're always doing hopeful things. We're always trying to communicate. We're always reaching out. And so I think the question of whether or not we should has been, to some extent, bypassed by the reality that we have. I mean, we've been broadcasting. It would take a lot for them to pick up our "I Love Lucy" and our, you know, our 1950s radio and TV programs, which are which are winging their way to the other stars right now. They're very faint, but they could be picked up if if the aliens wanted to, and if they had that science of what that receptive xenolinguistic science, whatever it would be. And um, we've been doing that for a while. We have really strong uh, military radar that goes into space. The cat is out of the, you know, interstellar bag already. Um, and again, I don't want to I don't want to dismiss people's legitimate concerns about how ideally we would all get together as a community and decide what to send and if to send. I think that's an ideal. Um, but the reality is, people have sent, you know. Uh, Doritos commercials into space. Literally. I think it's, it's already happened. It has already happened. Um, and I think that's a product of who we are and the fact that we are bold and we are hopeful and we are a little audacious in our infancy, just like kids are, right? We, we, we want to bang around. We shout. We make noise. That's how we do. If we were to find a message, what would be the best way to decode it? Like, would we use artificial intelligence? Or are people working on like some sort of program that could take apart the message and, you know, figure it out if or what, what it means? Yeah, people have been thinking about it. But the, I think the reality is we just have no idea. We have no idea what it would be like. And we can fantasize about having a set of prime numbers and then, you know, learning step by step. 
uh, following their math and having the math progress to the point where we can make sentences about things. It's really kind of a cool system, kind of beautiful. But, and we don't have any idea what they're going to send us, right? So uh, the only thing we can do is an all hands on deck kind of thing. We have to get the signal out to as many people as want it, broadcast it everywhere around the planet and tell everybody, hey, come play. We've got this big problem, this big, huge, marvelous puzzle, and we need you all here. We need we need the poets. We need scientists. We need uh, linguists. We need little kids with crayons. We need we need people who will build the signal into art projects and people who will play it backwards and people who will loop it and people who will make it, you know, assign each digit to a kind of fruit and make a fruit salad and eat it. We just need people to do everything because we don't have any idea what's the right thing. What, what are they thinking? How can we know, right? How can we think an alien thought? And it might be that they have designed a signal specifically for our little audacious young civilization that they think will understand. Or maybe we're just intercepting something that was meant, you know, not for us. Maybe we're just kids and we happen to overhear something, in which case they're not even trying to communicate with us. But lucky us, we get to overhear. So um, so the game is going to be, and it's going to be a marvelous game. The game is going to be, hey, everybody come play. Everybody do what you can with this signal. And um, we might not even know when we're right. You know, so... How do you know if you've successfully understood what the maple tree is saying to you? I don't know. I just don't know. So far, we haven't heard anything. What does that mean? If the universe is teeming with life, where is everybody? Are we just too far away and is space just too big? Is it just too hard to transmit a signal powerful enough to survive in the void of space? Or is something more sinister at work? It's possible that it's very rare for the universe to evolve life into an intelligent form. We don't understand why or how life originated, so it's also possible that life is just really, really rare. But there's another possibility. You may have heard of the famous Drake's equation. This equation is a way to predict how many intelligent communicating civilizations are out there. It's essentially a string of probabilities. The first few terms of this equation we know or are beginning to understand a little bit better star formation rate, the fraction of stars with planets, and we're working on understanding the fraction of planets that can sustain life. Then we also need to know the fraction of planets that can form life, and the fraction of these planets that eventually evolved into intelligent life. But the last term of this equation is the lifetime of an intelligent civilization. And what if this lifetime is very, very short? Uh, one of the final terms in the Drake's equation is Assuming that there's a planet that is suitable for life, and assuming it developed intelligence life, the final term is how long its civilization lasts. And so some people have said, well, maybe the reason why we haven't heard anything yet is because, you know, civilizations have this sort of time limit, like they either, you know, cause enough climate change on their planet to kill themselves off, or they blow themselves up with nuclear weapons. So I think if we were to find something that might be a good thing, you know, saying that, yes, it is possible to survive without killing yourself off. But if we don't find anything, it might similarly say something like, well, maybe the lifetime of a civilization is actually pretty short. So I was wondering what you thought about that. Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it depends on the day. Today, I'm thinking so far, so good. We didn't blow ourselves up in the 50s and 60s. We could have done that. We didn't, right? Um, so far, we haven't 
killed ourselves with climate change. We still could. So far, we haven't waged war such that we bash ourselves back into the Stone Age, which we still could do. We still could. Um, so I guess I'm inherently hopeful. I feel like we've made it through a couple things. Again, we really need to pay attention to this climate change thing because this really could kill us all. Um, we leave it to the cockroaches, right? Maybe, maybe that's what we have to do. And we might get wiped out by a by a by an asteroid. You know, it still could happen. But um, you know, I just think of us as I just think of us as better than that. I think that we don't have to kill each other, and we don't have to kill ourselves, and we can do this if we're paying attention, if we if we are scientists, and if we are dreamers. Um, and if we are good to each other, like we know how to be, I think we can make it. Maybe we'd even be the first. I don't know. So how does one get interested in linguistics of an alien race? Well, Sherry has a unique background. She's blind. She's always wanted to be an astronomer. But people said, how can you be an astronomer if you can't even see the stars? She ended up going into linguistics. But eventually, her knowledge of linguistics and her love of astronomy collided, making her into an expert of this very unique field of study. One of the reasons that we have to pay attention to science education is that we now need all kinds of scientists, right? We need everybody. We, we need everyone who thinks for a minute that they might want to be a scientist to do it. So um, my background, and, and that's not always been the case. We have not always been fair about that. We have not always been welcoming to all kinds of different folks who think they might want to be scientists. I'm blind and I was born in the 60s, a million years ago. Um, and I thought maybe I wanted to be an astronomer, but that just wasn't kind of what you did back then, right? Um, but I think that we, the, the beautiful thing is that we have the power to change all that. Once we discover that an injustice has been done or that something isn't right, we have the capacity to change our minds about that and say, wait a minute, let's, let's encourage everybody to be a scientist. And so disabled folk, yeah, come be scientists. You have the right to be a scientist. You have a right to access your world in the way that, is, the way that works for you. Um, and honest to gosh, we need everybody who wants to be a scientist now because we're in this climate change pickle. We need all kinds of people to think about it. And if when... When we get a message from an alien civilization, we're going to need all kinds of people with all kinds of brains and all kinds of ways of thinking and all kinds of ways of perceiving to come and participate in the decoding of the signal. Because we don't know which person is going to decode it, which person is going to have that crucial insight. Because of this, I think Sherry has some unique viewpoints that those of us who can see might not understand. What if the alien species we're trying to communicate doesn't have eyes? What if they can't see their star or can't see moons orbiting their planet? How would they even know that the universe is out there when they can't feel it or hear it? You know, part of our conversation, we've been talking about, you know, how we are as people. You know, we have our five senses, uh, we have two arms and so on. And so I know you've also looked at the idea of like, what if aliens don't have the same senses that we have? And you mentioned like, what would it be like for a civilization of blind aliens who can't see their star and can't see the moons that orbit their planet and can't see the stars in general. Like, how do you think a civilization like this would experience space and how would they even know that space is out there? Yeah. Isn't that a cool question? So like we can't, so we can't think an alien thought just to take a step back, right? We can't think an alien thought probably, but what we can do 
is take our own situation and sort of systematically modify it. Like take one, take one variable, take one factor and flip that to the other setting and then play out that scenario and see how it would go. So um, I thought when I was reading, when I was reading the study literature a thousand years ago, um, there was a lot of, uh, the implication has always been spoken sometimes and sometimes unspoken that any intelligent civilization would have some analogy of the human visual perceptual system. And I thought, well, why do we say that just because we do? And the eye has evolved probably several times independently on earth. It could, it seems reasonable. Um, but reasonable isn't always the way nature runs, right? It does what it, it does what it does. So, okay. So assume a planet kind of like our, we're just flipping this one setting, right? We're just flipping the site setting to off and kind of leaving most everything else the same. So human science started out with medicine, math, and astronomy. So medicine, fine, we could do that. Math, they could do that. But astronomy, there's not going to be those, those Stone Age blind alien tribes looking up at the stars and going, oh, what is that? They don't know the stars are there, right? So their fascination um, is going to be directed in other ways. So they would, they would probably maybe think about thermodynamics. Maybe their science would go that way. Um, they would certainly invent and control fire. Um, how we don't really know exactly how we did that. Um, but it's certainly doable. You're walking around, you find a forest fire. We think maybe that might be the way you find a forest fire that capture a little piece of that. Um, we don't know exactly how it happened. Um, but there's enough, there's enough blind people around so that we know there's enough blind people around living and walking around, uh, in, um, human civilizations now that we know you don't have to see to do things like tend to fire. You don't have to see to be able to do things like, uh, grow plants, um, Taming animals is not a visual thing. It's a listening, feeling, and thinking thing. I mean, it can be a visual thing, but it doesn't have to be, right? So you can, you can watch your science build. You get your thermodynamics. You do a little, uh, you get your fire. So you eventually discover that you can bake clay like we, like we did. You eventually discover smelting. Um, and I know blind people who blow glass, so it's possible to do that. Um, and so once you get metals then you're on the way, right? Then you can talk and you can discover magnetism and electricity. And once you get magnetism and electricity, you can start to build gizmos. You can have uh, radars, right? You can have radio. And then I imagine that what might happen is one day you're goofing around with your radar and you discover uh, maybe that you have a satellite along your planet orbiting, which would scare the bejesus out of you. I think, oh my gosh, there's a rock up there. Help! How's it staying up there? What's it doing? It's like it's a rock. It's flying around out there high up. And what? What? Um, and boy, then their physics would take off. And eventually they would, they would develop, um, uh, if they can receive radio, they could also receive visible light, right? So they would develop a little gizmo that would, that would tell them eventually that, hey, you know that sun that's been warming our planet and keeping us alive? It also emits these other weird frequencies that don't seem to do anything but bounce around. That's kind of funny. So they discover they would discover light without perceiving light. And then some guy who is bored sitting up at night sometime would turn one of those little perceivers, those little light perceivers up to the night sky and have his little alien mind blown by, oh my gosh, there's stars. They would discover that there's stars. And so they could have a pretty, they would have to have a pretty advanced civilization with um, all kinds of tech, probably self-driving cars. 
all kinds of cool tech before they would even know there were stars. Um, so at that point, things might average out. Once you've got tech, you can do everything. So like a blind person, a blind human armed with 21st century tech is pretty dang independent, right? There's all kinds of, just on your iPhone, there's all kinds of things you can do, right? You've got your GPS, um, you've got your whatever you've got, right? So I think that uh, that would sh- definitely shape their language. It would definitely shape the way their science developed, and it would definitely shape what things they think are important. But again, radio astronomy is not really essentially at its guts a visual science. It's a data science. So you don't see the data that you receive on your radio telescope. That's just little tiny bits of data. And we choose to display those visually because that's what we're good at. Um, But those are just data and you could display them tactily if you wanted to. And that could be the way that they would do that. Will we ever find a message from another civilization on another planet? Maybe. Will we ever be able to decode it? Perhaps, although that might be less likely. But I think, even if we never end up finding a message, it's worth asking ourselves, what would a message that we sent look like, and what do we expect to hear back? Thinking about these questions may lead us to understand how we think as humankind, why we exist in this space within the universe, why we comprehend the world around us like we do, and even really what makes us human. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us and see us in two weeks for another episode. And remember that you can become more involved in the podcast, ask future guests questions, and see advanced content on Patreon. Check us out at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Some of the background music you hear is produced by me. Others are clips from Pumpkin Soup by Airtone, Recreation by Airtone, In Suspense at Pod Summit, Kate Oren by Dysfunction Al, The Right Voice by Robero, Longing by Gordon Ark, 28 Austin at I-10 by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find out more about these songs in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.